Um, and then, of course, I want you to invi- I invite you now to turn to Genesis chapter 2 as we continue our journey through Genesis. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about creation or evolution. And I believe that we uh, made the case from God's Word that God spoke the world into being, that God Himself is the divine creator of all things, and that He did in fact create everything that we see around us in six literal 24-hour days. And then of course last week we asked the question, in His image or in ours? And that's an important question because today's society wants, we want to believe that we own our own life. We get to do what we want to do. But we learned last week from the Word of God that in fact, no, God created you in His image to represent Him, to reflect His glory. And so anytime that you take glory from God, you're robbing God of His own glory. No, He wants us to use our lives and the gifts that he has given to us to bring him glory because he's the one who created us. He created us to represent him, to reproduce and fill the earth, and then to rule over his creation. We learned that last week in the first part of chapter 2. And of course we saw that in chapter 1 it was the larger general creation of the universe, the heavens, and the earth and humankind. And then in chapter 2, we're going to see how God did it in more detail. So there's no contradiction here. It's just the way in which God uh, inspired Moses to reveal his creative power to the world. And so if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2, please stand for the reading of his word. And I'm just going to read the first few verses there, and then we'll carry on. Verse 8 of chapter 2 says this, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs through the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God had commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Let's pause and pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the creation account and how you planted a garden in the east called Eden. Lord, we help, help us understand what this particular narrative will teach us today and how we are to rightly relate to you and to steward the universe, the earth that you have given for us to steward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
So this week we're going to be talking about, in the second portion of this passage, we see the institution of marriage. And so I've titled this entire passage, Covenant or Cohabitation. Covenant or Cohabitation. Now let's be clear. Uh, today we live in a culture where a lot of young people are cohabitating. And I shouldn't just say young people. Elderly people are doing it as well. They, they find the justification in the sense that, oh, I can save some money if I live together with my maybe hopeful spouse at some point. And of course, my answer to that would be, well, you know, you can get a roommate uh, and that roommate then can be helping you and your finances. Listen, it's not easy to live in Charleston, South Carolina anymore. I remember my first apartment rent for one bedroom apartment was $320 a month. Um, and that was back in 1988. So I understand how costly it is to live. But truly, living together to save money is not a good reason. It's an excuse truly. But then also there's this idea that, well, I really want to get to know a person before I marry them. And the best way to do that is to live with them. And uh, I would say, well, guess what? Then you're missing, the, you're missing the point of marriage. Marriage isn't what you can bring to it and what uh, the other person can bring to it. Really, marriage is a covenant relationship before Almighty God, and He will give you the opportunity to know that person over time. I tell people when I do premarital counseling, I tell them, I say, women um, marry men believing that they will change. And they don't. And men marry women believing they won't change. And they do. And so if you're coming into it thinking everything's going to stay the same, I'm telling you it's not. How many of you who have been married for any number of years can say it ain't easy, right? Marriage is not for the weak of heart. Marriage is a commitment that through the thick and thin, you are going to hang through the difficult parts of your journey together. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that today as we go forward. So if you have questions, and I've gotten numerous questions thus far, I've answered some of them last week, I'll answer some more today, uh, but you can text it to this number, you can also email it to that email address. So let's recap what we learned last week, and I'll quickly run through these. Every human being is created in the image of Almighty God. Any person you see out on the street, whether you look like them or, or act like them, they are created in the image of Almighty God, and therefore they are of infinite value to Him. And therefore you ought to love them and serve them and, love, and share the love of Christ with them. Number two, God created humans to one, represent Him, two, reproduce, and three, to rule. That is why he created humankind. And in fact, this may be a marker as to why uh, Satan rebelled. It was perhaps Satan's jealousy of humankind and God's uh, setting them apart from the entire creation and saying, I'm giving you, humankind, these wonderful privileges and responsibilities. Uh, thirdly, there are two genders, male and female. Now obviously we live in a culture where gender fluidity is all the rage, but I'm here to tell you that the Bible is very clear there are two genders. 
And so we need to stand on that and we need to love people who are struggling with all of those decisions about who they are. Identity should be in Christ, in the one who created us to begin with. Fourthly, all humankind is descended from Adam. This is very important because then it all establishes with Adam. And of course, we will see here in this passage that we read today is that Adam is the first Adam, but Jesus is the last Adam. That Jesus, of course, makes all things right. And so we'll see that over these next couple of weeks as we, as we walk through, of course, the fall. Uh, the Sabbath rest is a pattern. Uh, for our work week. We remember, we, we think about 360 days a year, okay? And that's the time it takes the earth to revolve around the sun. We also think of 30 days. That's the lunar calendar that we think about. Um, and so we have a solar calendar. That's why we have 31, sometimes 30 other times. And in February, it's 28 or 29. But a lunar calendar is kind of how the Hebrew people adopted it. It's 30 days a month, and then they add a 13th month at the end of the year. But the idea behind it is we understand where the year and the month comes from. The only place that we learn about the week is in the word of God. And God created in six days and then he rested on the seventh day and he gave that as a pattern for us for our work week. That's why we have uh, Sunday through Saturday. Uh, Genesis 1, of course, reveals Elohim and he is the powerful creator God. And then Genesis 2 actually reveals Yahweh. And we'll look at that a little bit more this morning. Now, one question that I received this week was this. Elohim is in the plural. And it's true. In the Hebrew, the Elohim is plural. Uh, oftentimes in the scriptures, you'll see the singular version used, El Shaddai, or El Rahim, or Roy. And ultimately, what we see here is that Elohim is in the plural. But here's the clue to interpreting the word of God. Whenever the Elohim, the actual subject, is in the plural, the marker is in the verb usage. And so we see this beautiful texture in the scripture of the Holy Bible in Hebrew is that the Elohim all, it refers to the majesty of the Godhead as a whole, uh, referring to the Trinitarian Godhead, but then in the singular, he is moving, he is creating, he is acting. And so we see that Elohim is a picture of a general majestic God who brings everything to bear in his creative power. And then we come to the Yahweh God who is the personal God who desires a relationship with humans. And so that's why we have these two accounts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And then we see here that the breath of God is the source of all life. Of course, we understand that and we follow that. So where is Eden? Uh, we, we go to our passage now and we want to make sure... Is it going? Oh, there it is. Okay, there's Eden. Okay, so where is it? Look at what it says there. I just read it in verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. And so... The, the marker or the clue that we get from the passage I just read is that we know two of those four rivers that we, uh, that we see in verses 10 down through 14. Two of those rivers still exist, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And they meet up in a place that we call Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a, uh, a word that is, uh, describes 
the land between the two rivers. That's what Mesopotamia actually means. So if you've been in school, you know that Sumeria, Mesopotamia is what they refer to as the cradle of civilization. This is where God planted the garden. And that's why we have the marker there. Tigris and Euphrates are two of those rivers. The other two, we don't know. We don't know where they went. We don't know if they dried up. We have no clue. All we do know is that the Tigris and Euphrates, where they join, is in the area called Mesopotamia. It's also in Ur. So I show up here Abraham's journey, okay? And his journey begins in the land of Ur, which is Babylon, okay? Babylonia. And of course, Babylon is the second most mentioned city in the Bible, just behind Jerusalem. And so here's Abraham raised in a culture that was not God-like, and it's, of course it comes from the Tower of Babel. We'll get to Babel eventually in our study through Genesis 1 through 11. But Abraham came, God called Abraham out of Ur, and he carried him all the way through what's known as the Fertile Crescent. Obviously, if he would have taken a straight shot to Israel, he may never have made it because it's nothing but wasteland and desert. And so Abraham and his, his uh, trek takes us to modern-day Israel. And, of course, Moses, writing this account in Genesis chapter 2, says, God planted a garden in the east. The east would be east of Israel where they were. And so that makes total sense that the Garden of Eden is in that area. And so now we know that Eden was likely in Mesopotamia. Now, Adam's job, what was his job? We see the two trees. Everybody knows about the two trees. One is the tree of life. The other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that God uh, prohibits Adam from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We want to ask that question, why? And we'll get to that in a moment. But let's skip down to verse 15, and we see that the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it. And take care of it. Do you remember last week when I said that the vegetation that God had created was in maturity during his creative uh, six days? But then God needs humankind, or he wants human, he doesn't need humankind, but he wants to utilize humankind to help cultivate and propagate that vegetation. And so that is why Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 explain the purpose for why God created man, to work the ground and to take care of the ground. And then thirdly, we have this question, why the command to eat, not eat of one tree? I will tell you, this is an important uh, doctrine for us to understand. First of all, we are created in his image. We are created in his image, and we know that God is free. God is free to do whatever he wants. God is sovereign. We say sovereign. That God can do whatever he wants. If he chooses to do something, no one, because he is judge and jury, no one can argue with God. It was his plan. It's his word, and we must trust it. We must fall in line with it. But then secondly, we have the freedom as well. We have the freedom to choose. And loving God, obeying God, is a choice. 
It is a choice that we can make. We can choose not to, just like Satan fell. Satan had a choice. God created him with volitional will. Satan fell. In addition to that, Adam had volitional choice. Adam and Eve were given the ability to make a choice. What did they do? They chose to disobey. Later on in chapter 4, we'll see that God approaches Cain and even Cain. He says, Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And the implication behind that is, yes, of course. Because true love is never forced. We don't have a God who has wound up the universe and determined everything beforehand. That is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is that He has given us the ability to choose Him. And of course, that's why Moses commands the Israelites, I give you this day life and death. Choose life. Choose life. So that's why God commanded man to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was testing their willingness, their, 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 their choice to follow and trust Him. Of course, we know God knows all things. He just doesn't predetermine it. And of course, He knows that man would fall. So man fell. But God's plan is never thwarted because from the foundation of the world, His Son said yes to becoming the sacrifice for our sin. And so we see here that the next question is, what are the consequences of that disobedience? I think it's interesting. Look at what it says there in verse uh, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You will certainly die. Now, I don't know about you, but as I continue reading, I don't see that Adam died. So how do we square this? Is God lying when he tells Adam this? No. There is spiritual death that happened immediately. Spiritual death is a separation from God. That we are separate from him now because we have disobeyed his command. And so therefore, that separation is what is our transgression. That's what it means to be dead in our transgressions and sins. That we are separate from God. And when we're separate from God, we don't receive that relational value and benefit of being connected to Him. So spiritual death is the first death. And then there's the physical death that Adam would ultimately face. And of course, all humankind faces death, physical death. This is the consequence for the sin that we find in the Garden of Eden in the fall. And so we answer those questions because it makes total sense that spiritual death happened immediately and then physical death would come eventually. But then we come to this uh, picture of Eden, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but it is interesting having just studied Revelation in the fall, in November 26th, I think it was that, uh, that uh, particular week, I covered the eternal state. Look over there at the eternal state, and we'll see the contrast between Eden and the eternal state as we learned in Revelation. Now, number one, in uh, Eden, there is night, there is sea, there is sun and moon, and there is a garden. 
But in the eternal state, there will be no more night, there will be no sea, there will be no sun or moon, and it will be a city, the eternal city, the Jerusalem. Um, and then, of course, we see that there's, um, there's flowing out, there's, there's a water flowing out of Eden, but here we see that the river will be flowing from the throne. We see gold in the land versus gold in the city. Notice I saw, showed here that in Havilah there is gold. Of course, we know that Babylon is known as it, for its gold. Uh, the image that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 2 is the gold head of Babylon. And that's what it represents. Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon at the time of Daniel's ministry, his head was gold because there was tremendous gold in that city. And then, of course, we see the tree of life is in the middle of this garden, but there are trees of life on the side of each river in Revelation. And then we see that there is uh, the different precious stones and uh, jewels that uh, uh, are part of both the garden and the city. And then finally, we see here that um, God dwells with his people in both cases. He dwells with Adam and Eve in the garden. We'll see that in Gen Genesis chapter 3, but we also see that he will dwell with his people forever in the eternal state. And so now we turn to the question at hand, covenant or cohabitation. And I want us to see here in verses uh, 17 and or 18 and following, what God says. The Lord God, and remember when it says the Lord God in your Bible, that's Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, the personal God. And he says this in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So first of all, this is the first time in the scripture that God has noticed that something is not good. And he says that it is not good because man is designed for not only vertical relationship with his creator, but also for horizontal relationships with his fellow humankind. And so here, of course, God sees that Adam is alone. And so he says it is not good for him to be alone. I find it interesting that the very next thing that God does is he brings all of the animals to Adam. And he says, start naming them. And I ask young people in marriage counseling, premarital counseling, I say, why does he do this? It's very quick. It's very quick. It doesn't take long for them to pick up on the fact that as God brings these animals, Adam starts recognizing, I don't look like that. 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 There's nothing that is like me. It is this recognition. Uh, one of the movies that is famous only because of this one line, it's called Jerry Maguire. Remember when Jerry comes and bursts into the house? He's this uh, sports agent, and he's fallen for this girl, and... Uh, he comes in, he's already almost blown the relationship, but then he comes in and he says, you complete me. Do you remember that? How many of you wives have ever heard your husband say that? You complete me. You know, and I think it's interesting, but that's really the essence here. 
I mean, we laugh at the Jerry Maguire film, but it's really interesting because that is what a helpmate does. They complete. We are, we are complementary. We are compatible. We are uh, male and females bring different aspects to the relationship. And when we do that, we glorify God in our body, in our soul, and in our spirit. That's how we bring glory to him. And of course, God says, hey, start naming the animals and you'll recognize the problem. The problem is, is that humans are once again distinct from the animals. Do you remember what I said last week? I said, listen, if God created us in the evolutionary cycle, then we would have been, we would have, our lineage would be apes. But that's not true because apes are not created in the image of Almighty God. Humans are. We're distinct. We are the highest order of God's creation. And then Adam recognized that he did not have a partner that resembled him, that was like him. And so marriage context is one male, one female, and they are to do this. They are to represent God in their marriage, and they are to reflect God's glory, and they are to reproduce fill the earth, and then rule over the earth. You'll see the purpose for which we were created. And so ultimately, that's what God wants us to do. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, is it legal, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus said, it was not that way from the beginning. From the beginning. Jesus is referring back to this passage of Scripture. From the beginning, it was not that way. But because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses wrote in his law, I want you to see here as we read through the rest of this chapter, please hear the heartbeat of God in his covenant language. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each creature, that was its name. So the man gave, gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. The word helper here is eris. And it really can be referred to, even God in Psalm 89 refers to God as my helper. He is my helper. So it's not a demeaning uh, reference here. But no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and shall be called, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. When Sally read from Ephesians chapter 5 today, this particular verse, verse 24, was quoted by Paul in reference to the marriage relationship between a male and a female and be between Christ and his church. 
And then verse 25 ends it all by saying Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Obviously sin had not come into the picture yet. And the knowledge of what's good and what's evil has not come into the picture yet. We'll talk about clothing next week, but it's interesting. If you look around at the animal kingdom, do any of them wear clothes? No, except the little toy poodles that the celebrities you know, dress them in, right? Other than that, you don't go to the zoo and see the rhinoceros in a bikini, do we? No, we don't. If we did, we'd probably keep moving, okay? So the point is, is that God has created us in his image and he wants our image to be joined to another image that was made in his image and that image is to reflect his glory. And so he institutes the marriage relationship. Now, it's interesting because this story, this narrative, predates Abraham, who is the father of the three major monotheistic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Abraham is the father, but this institution of marriage predates Abraham. Furthermore, it predates Moses, who is the great lawgiver. The civil law that has been adopted pretty much as the blueprint for every human society. But this particular institution of marriage is something that God ordained and decreed from the very beginning. That's why Jesus in Matthew 19 says, not so, because from the beginning God ordained a male and a female to be married. Okay, and so now we get to this context uh, of how the solution comes. First, God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. This idea of sleep is a, uh, oftentimes a euphemism for death in the New Testament. Many times we will see that euphemism used. He, they, they have fallen asleep. The idea is that they are no longer in control of what's going on. They are under. Now, when I had surgery back in July, they put me under, and I wanted to be 100% under, okay? I didn't want to feel one thing, okay? And thank God uh, I didn't feel one thing. Um, But the beauty of this is that God brings Adam into this deep sleep. And then what does he do? He pulls the woman the rib from his side. And he forms woman. Now I want you to picture Jesus Christ on the cross. I want you to picture that he has been hanging there for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Jesus has just given up the ghost. That means he has laid down his own life. No one took it from him. He laid it down of his own accord. And the Roman centurions who were experts at execution and ensuring death, they came by to the first thief on the cross and they broke his legs so that he could no longer push himself up in order to perpetuate his breathing, that death would come very soon. And they went to the other thief on the cross, on the other side of Jesus, and they broke his legs. 
in order to perpetuate death. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he had already died. This fulfills Old Testament references that not one of his bones was broken. You see, they didn't need to break Jesus' bones because he had already laid down his life. And so the centurion takes his spear and he plunges it into the side of Jesus Christ. Blood mixed with water flowed. The blood of Christ and the purity of his bride were mixed together in a beautiful picture of the redemption story. That at the cross, the bride was born. The bride of Christ is the church. Any of us who place our faith in Jesus Christ, we become a part of his bride. And that's what's happening here is that God is pointing us as he takes that rib from Adam's side. He is pointing us to the cross and saying, this is how you will become my children, my bride of Christ. And I teach young married couples this all the time, that God made woman from that rib in order that they might be complete in Christ. That they are one flesh. That's why Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Now some would say, that's because when he saw her, he said, whoa, man. But no, that's not why. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't translate in the, his, in the Hebrew, okay? He didn't sit there and say that. No, he, he said, this is why man leaves his mother and his father, and they are now united to become one flesh. And the reason they need to do that is to glorify God, because in that, it's like a covenant promise between the two. Uh, in uh, Ecclesiastes, it says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. They become one flesh. Now, you would ask, wait a minute, there's only two of us, but we're supposed to reflect the Trinity. I'm here to tell you that every time a couple gets married, there is the, the groom. There is the bride. And then there is the witness, God himself. And what I always tell them is that here's the groom standing over here and here's the bride standing over here and they have a certain amount of distance between them and that marriage is designed for them to draw closer and closer and closer and closer together that they truly become one spirit, one flesh. And I then teach them that this is a triangle, it's not a line. If you try to come together on this line, you will never come close enough to be glorifying to the one who created you and instituted marriage. No. Instead, the, the bride needs to work on her vertical relationship with God. That triangular relationship. And as she draws closer to the one at the top of that triangle, 
And as the groom who desires to become closer and closer to God, then they move up that line closer and closer to the pinnacle, the top of that triangle. And as they move closer to each other, they are getting closer to God. You see? So as you get close to God, you get close to one another. And that's glorifying to Him. Because you are giving glory to the one who is at the top of that triangle. He is the one who brings us together. That's why Solomon said a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's a powerful truth. Marriage emulates Christ in his church. We, said, we saw that. Sally read it in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. Wives, you know, we, we get hung up on the word submit today. But the, the actual essence of it is, is that we are to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in doing so, if the husband is going to lay down his life for his wife, the wife would definitely submit to that, reverence that. Because there has to be order. While there's unity in the community of the Trinity, there is order. God the Father has His function. God the Son has His functions. The God the Spirit has His functions. But all of them are co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful. And so they were not ashamed when they came into the garden with God. And I want us to realize this, that as we get to the recap, I want to say a few words. Number one, as we really delve into this idea of covenant versus cohabitation, we have to address the idea of uh, same-sex marriage, you know, uh, transgenderism, uh, gender fluidity. It's, it's in our culture. And I've come to this, people ask me all the time, how do I address this with people? I have people in my family. I have people in my friendships. I have people at school. I don't want to be mean to them. And I say, absolutely, you should love them unconditionally as Christ loves you. Love them. For those who don't know, I have a sister who is a lesbian. Does that change my love for her? No. I love her unconditionally. She's my sister. But the bottom line is, is this. I've come to the conclusion that there are three kinds of people in this world relative to a lot of these topics. The first group are those who are either atheist or agnostic or they are non-affiliating to any religion whatsoever. And so the Bible really is just an ancient book. It's got maybe some good things in it, but really it's not the Word of God. It's not absolutely my instruction book for life. And so they can live according to how they want to live because the question that I ask them is, who is your authority? What's your authority for living? And if I talk to that first group, the large answer is, well, I have no authority. So essentially, they are God. They've chosen how to live their life. They're the captain of their ship. They get to make up their own rules. And how am I going to sit there and debate with them about that? That's like if we go out on the pickleball courts. And I say, okay, I've got my set of rules, and you've got your set of rules. How's that going to work? Right? Well, every time I score a point, it's not just one point, it's 20. <laughs> Who's going to win? Right? Until they change their rules to say, well, mine's every, every time I score a point, it's 40. You follow what's happening here? It's, it's like we're playing by different sets of rules. And that's the first group. They have their own set. They have their own Bible. 
It's what they think. Then there's a second group, and it's kind of most of the people in this room that we say, oh, time out. I don't have my own Bible. I have this Bible. And everything written in it, I trust it. It's inerrant. That means it has no errors. It's infallible. That means it's fully truth, 100% truth. And it is God-breathed. It's God's Word, His love letter to us. And yes, we may not understand it all. Yes, we may not even agree with it all. But we say, Lord, we may not understand. It's just like kids and their parents. Child, you don't understand now, but later on you will, kind of thing. The idea is that we stand up under the Word of God. We say, Lord, this is your Word. Now, does that mean that this group that I just described is perfect? No. I'm imperfect. I sin all the time. I'm guilty. But I recognize that the, the judgment for my sin comes not from myself or from society. It comes from the Word of God. So when I sin, I acknowledge that I have fallen short of God's glory here, that I need to get my life right that I need to make a choice to turn, repent of that sin, and get right with God again. Then there's a third group. And this is where the rubber really meets the road. There's a third group that does aspire, they profess Christianity. And they do hold up the Word of God and they say, this is the Word of God. But then something in life, some experience, some issue that happened in their family. Maybe one of their children has gone wayward. And here, don't, don't, don't take this to me, uh, mean that I'm only hinting on the same-sex marriage issue. I'm only doing it because it's a covenant relationship that I've just described for us in the Word of God. But it could be anything. It could be the fact that you're jealous or that you're a gossip or that you're a backbiter or a divider or that you have Um, an eating disorder, or if you have this or that, any kind of issues. I'm not, it could be mental. You could, you could look down on people. You could be insensitive. You could be uh, uh, arrogant. I don't, I don't know what the issue is that you have in your, all of us have it. It could be pride. So any sin condition, I think the difference between group two and group three is this. Group two says, yeah, that is a sin. Yeah, that is wrong. And I'm struggling with that. And I want to get better. And I want God to hold me accountable. And I want others to hold me accountable. But the third group says, well now, I've got to somehow get this part of the scripture out. I want to turn a blind eye to that. I want to remove this section of scripture because that doesn't match up with culture. You see what's happening. And friends, this morning I'm here to tell you that there are many churches that are going that way. Not just individuals, but churches. They are choosing to say God's word is good only when it meets to my current understanding. So my question to that third group is, who is your authority, really? Friends, this morning, my encouragement for all of us is that we need to make that decision. Because otherwise, you're like a boat tossed in a storm. You're back and forth, up and down, in and out. 
This generation is facing its own set of issues. The next generation will, will see another set of issues. But as we sang earlier, ancient words, ever true. Changing me, changing you. You see, we can't allow culture to change God's word. We need God's word to change culture. And that's our message today. As long as I stand in this pulpit, this pastor will preach this word unabashedly, unashamedly, and without any equivocation. None. So with that, we re respond by saying Genesis 2 is Adam's job, is to work and keep this garden that God has given to us. The consequences for our disobedience is spiritual and physical death. Adam recognized his lack of a partner. God gave him, formed this woman from man, and she became his bride, and that is the covenant relationship of marriage. Covenant is a contract. It is an agreement. It is coming together to become one flesh. Praise God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this institution of marriage. We thank you for the Garden of Eden and how you placed man in that garden. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you will guide us in our relationships this week. May we pray for those we know in our circle of influence who don't know you. May we also pray for those who know you, but maybe they're not wanting to accept the word of God 100%. My, my prayer, Lord, is that we will help them to see how it can be a, a freeing exercise to just let God be God and let us be his representatives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen.